Good morning. That was worse than first service. Let's try that again. Good morning. morning. Let's pretend for the next 30 minutes that I am your pastor and you are my congregation and that we love each other and that we're going to get along and I'm even smiling on Sunday morning, so this is good. If you are new, sorry, the better preachers are going to continue next Sunday, Um, so be filled with grace for me today. Um, And for the rest of the community, um, before I begin, I just want to say thank you for uh, just the warm welcome you've reached out um, to Charlene and I. Um, It's been very just encouraging just to see the acceptance, even though half of you are crossing your arms and looking at me judgmentally right now. (laughs) But for the most part, it's been very welcoming, and for the most part, it's been very cool. Um, Especially as a new husband for only 10 months, we're kind of wondering how will the pastor's wife transition, but you guys have been much warmer to her than to me. Um, so thank you for that. The first comm group we went to, um, after the, we were done eating and we were leaving, they were like, oh, Pastor Paul, they shook my hand, and then they were like, Charlene, and they like all hugged her, and I was just like, that's cool, that's fine. But you know, as long as one of us is loved, that'll be good. Um, listen, I have a hard out at 1240 because they need to feed you, so let's get right into the word. Uh, will you turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 12, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 12 today. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will surely respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against him. So they left him and went away. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. It's a decade. A decade ago, and it seems to get bigger every year, I was in college, I think, or just getting out. And at this point, I had committed to being out of my comfort zone, so I signed up to live with strangers at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I lived with, I was paired with six other white Dutch guys who were 7 feet 14 inches, and I had no idea who they were. And the thing is that they all knew who each other was, and it was super awkward. Um, And they didn't really talk to me, but the problem was that I had a car, none of them did. And so one night, one of the guys, I don't know, I called him tall number four. Tall number four came home, and he looked kind of serious. So I said, hey, I always said, hey, or hey, buddy, like I never knew their names. I said, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? And he said, Paul, you have a car, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, can you take me to the hospital right now? Something really bad happened. And so when somebody comes home late, 
And they say that to you with the face that he had. You don't really ask questions. So he got into my 2001 Hyundai Sonata, a.k.a. the Grey Ghost. And we went through this Michigan winter with a foot of snow on the ground, and we went to this hospital. And what I found out when I got there was that one of his friends, who was a non-Christian, who he had been witnessing to for about 14 years, just had a baby out of wedlock with his girlfriend. And for some reason that night, his girlfriend started to bleed, and it was an emergency, so they called the ambulance. But he really wanted to go and be there for his childhood friend. And so I'm kind of there, and I can't leave because my, friend, my roommate doesn't have a car. And so I'm just trying to be a presence of peace and just, you know, whatever, watching General Hospital on the TV. And they're staring there at that place. I don't know what you call it, but through the glass, plate glass, his friend's looking at his newborn infant daughter. And it's just with an earshot. And, I, and my roommate goes and stand next to him, stands next to him, and he says, you look afraid. What, what's wrong? You're not alone. You have your community. You have your family. It's going to be fine. Diapers aren't a big deal. Don't be afraid. And this is the part that stuck with me all these years. My roommate's friend looked at him and says, I am afraid, but I'm not afraid of diapers. I'm not afraid of anything that you think I'm afraid of. What I realize right now is that my great-grandfather was an alcoholic, and he beat his kids. And my grandfather was an alcoholic, and he beat his kids. And my father was an alcoholic, and he beat us. And I've been wrestling with alcoholism for my entire life. And I just realized that the family history that I have means that I will most likely end up beating this child. And that's what I'm afraid of. Now, for a guy, knowing that he was called to ministry and still fighting it in college, what one-sentence answer can I come up with the gospel to kind of fix all the problems? Nothing. Because the story of his family, the history of his family, was steeped in brokenness and sin. And frankly, to this day, it doesn't sound and it doesn't look good. In our text today, Jesus is telling a parable or a story and he's talking to the Jewish leadership primarily, and the Jewish leadership is also called the Sanhedrin. And he says to them this story that begins in verse 1. He says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower. It's important because he planted a vineyard, he put a fence around it to protect it, he dug a pit for the wine press, meaning that all the work was done, and he didn't just put a fence around it, but he put a tower there for security. In other words, the vineyard owner is doing all the work that needs to be done. He then leased it to tenants and went into another country to wait for the crop to come. Now, if you and I were there at this time, we would sit there with our, with our hands on our cheeks ready to go, and we'd be like, Jesus, tell us the story. Where is this going? We don't know. But the problem was with the Sanhedrin and any other Jew that was listening, if they had ever gone to temple and listened to the Torah being read, as soon as Jesus said, a man planted a vineyard, they would have immediately known what he was talking about. It was not a new story. It was an old story. Because in Isaiah 5, here's what it says. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. You see, what Jesus was actually doing was he was telling an Old Testament story, an old story that everybody already knew. And what happens in Isaiah 5? The same thing as what's happening in Jesus' story. This owner goes, except for it's a little bit more specific in Isaiah 5. He says he found a fertile hill. He dug and cleared it of stones. He planted it not just with vines, but with 
choice vines, meaning he painstakingly hand-selected these vines so that they would be the best of the best. He built a watchtower. He, he, he built a, hum, or a, a wine vat, and he looked for it to yield grapes. In other words, he had done all the work. All the vineyard had to do was do what it does naturally, produce grapes. And yet when the, when the, when the grapes came in, they were not fertile Delicious winemaking grapes, they were wild. In other words, they were sour and they were worthless to be eaten and only meant to be thrown away. Verse 4, the vineyard owner laments, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not already done? He's saying, what more can I do? What happens to the rest of the story in Isaiah? The beloved owner condemns the vineyard, and he not only condemns it, but he allows it to be destroyed. He says, you will never bear fruit. I will destroy your walls. I will destroy your tower, and you will become nothing. Not only that, I will curse you so that the rain will never fall upon you ever again, and you will be forgotten, cursed. It will be left to death, destruction, and doom really uplifting story for us on this Thanksgiving afternoon, isn't it? Are you ready to go eat turkey now? The vineyard would be destroyed because it did not bear fruit as it was meant to, despite the best intentions and all the perfect work and preparation of the vineyard owner. It turns out that the old story of Isaiah 5 is not really a story filled with hope, but one that is hopeless. It's over, buried, dead, gone. But Jesus continues this story, and it's a little different. There's a twist in Mark 12. Instead of leaving the perfectly prepared and provided for a vineyard to bear the expected good fruit, at the end of verse 1 in Mark 12, Jesus says that the owner leases the vineyard to tenants and then goes to another country. This was actually common practice. People who were extremely wealthy, who owned a ton of land, found it too difficult to farm the land for themselves. So they would find responsible tenants or, or leasers and enter into a covenant, a relationship, saying, you will use my land to plant your crops, and when it, times, when it comes time to harvest, I will get a percentage of your harvest, and you will be able to use my land. Symbiotic, healthy, good, relationship, agreement. Verse 2 through 5. When the season came, the owner sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Why didn't the owner go? At that time, if you sent your servant, he was coming in the authority and identity of his owner or of his boss. So when the season came, the owner sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the owner sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And with so many others, some they beat and some they killed. So when the harvest came, the owner rightfully sends his servants to get what he is worthy of and do. And the tenants see the servants coming, and they abuse them at best, and they murder them at worst. What they are saying to the owner is a word that I can't say in this church because we're Christians. Forget you. But it's an act of outright rejection and violence, something unheard of. Who does this? Who so openly and blatantly rejects the owner of the vineyard that they have been working in? 
more than the tenants, because the tenants, it says the evil tenants or whatever in the title. For me, my question as I was wrestling through this text was to the owner, what are you doing? Are you dumb? Okay, the first servant that you send is going to be probably your least favorite servant, named like Bucktooth Bill or whatever. And so you send Bucktooth Bill to go get your crop, and they abuse him. So rejection. And then maybe you just want to make sure, but they send, he sends a second one. And then it's not good, but it says not only does he send a third or a fourth, but many others, the vineyard owner continues to send, despite the fact that each time without fail, they are abused at best and murdered at worst. Either dude hates his servants, or there's another motive there. I don't know if you're tracking here, but the characters in this parable aren't random. The owner is God who perfectly and completely provides for the vineyard. The tenants in this parable, as Jesus is rewriting it, is the leadership, the Sanhedrin that he is talking to. They are rejecting the servants of the vineyard owner, God. The servants are the priests, the prophets, the judges, and other servants that God had sent to his people throughout history since the Abrahamic covenant. Every priest, every prophet, every servant of the Most High, they are the servants that were sent. And the vineyard is the consecrated people of God, you and I, the church. And so why does the owner continue to send his servants to his vineyard and to the tenants and to abuse and to death? One, because he is a just owner and he knows that he is worthy of what he is due. And he will get what he is due. And two, what we, what we see as earthly foolishness and stupidity is actually mercy and an invitation to reconcile. What the owner or God is saying to the evil tenants is, this is your sin every time I send my servant to you. Repent. Stop abusing my servants. Stop killing and murdering my servants. This is an opportunity for you to repent. And by sending my servants with my identity and authority, I am actually reaching out to you and saying, return and be reconciled and made right in this covenant relationship that I have formed with you. It's an invitation to confess and repent and return. So how does the story end in Mark 12? He still had one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent to them saying, they will respect my son, but those with the tenants said to one another, this is the son, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they kill him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It makes no sense. It makes no sense that beyond the servants that he would send his son. And let's get really interested in the Greek nerdiness here. In the translation, it says the beloved son, but what that's actually translated as is his only son. So the owner sends his beloved only son out of actual love, not judgment, in order that they would finally, at the last resort, confess and repent and return to him. To reconcile the covenant relationship. 
And what they do is they see the heir, the son coming, and they say, this is the heir, let's kill him one, let's not bury him and throw him out of the vineyard too, and so we can take over the inheritance. What are they talking about? Especially in this context and time, if you killed somebody or somebody died, you needed to bury them in a specific way. And if you didn't, what you were saying is, I don't care about your afterlife. I hope you are dead and lost eternally and your spirit wanders forever. We do not respect you. So just killing him isn't bad enough. They just leave him outside to the elements too. How can they take over the inheritance? At that time, if a piece of land or property had no owner, after a certain amount of time, you could go and claim that as your own. So these evil tenants were saying, listen, the heir, the son is coming, let's kill him. Eventually the owner, the father will die, and then we can say, this is ours. It's actually kind of an interesting rule, because if that happened today, there are a lot of you with nice houses and cars that I would like to take as my own. That was a joke. We need to just smile a little bit. <laughs> the pastor said to me, the second service is the hardest, and I'm trying to work with you guys. Uh-huh. The owner sends his son, his only son, his beloved son. And what's frustrating to me about all this is this. All throughout Mark, especially in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is revealing to the disciples, these country bumpkins who are illiterate and bucktooth, and the Sanhedrin and all the Jewish leadership around him, I am the son of man. I am the revival. I am the redemption. I am the one that was prophesied about for thousands of years. It is me. And each time they miss the gospel over and over and over again. Look at me. Stop writing. If you don't see the gospel here, then we don't understand the gospel. That the owner, the father, sends his beloved and only son out of an act of mercy and a reaching out to reconcile and to redeem If we don't understand that as the gospel, we are missing the powerful point of this parable. This is the grace of God, the mystery, the answer to the question, who does this? This is foolishness. This is dumb. It's it's idiotic. And yet in this, the gospel, the answer is, who does this? The living God. Redeemer, Emmanuel the perfect prophet, priest, and king, merciful father, our God. He rewrites Isaiah 5, the story of condemnation, into the story of ultimately hope in Mark 12, an old story retold. I wonder if the disciples could see it. Ten minutes left. Let me get there. Three things I want to leave with you. Number one, it's okay to smile at a pastor that's preaching once in a while. (laughs) Some of you are looking at me like I kidnapped your puppy and like I'm holding it ransom. That was not number one. Here's number one. Are you and I good tenants of the gospel that we have been entrusted with? Did you notice that at the end of Mark 12, the story that Jesus says, the vineyard's not condemned. He condemns the tenants and they will be destroyed and judged and removed But the vineyard, the people of God, the church, the body of Christ, will be then given to new tenants, new leadership, new servants of the King Most High. And why am I calling us tenants? 
Because in the New Testament, it says over and over and over again, and just so you don't think I'm making this up, I want to make this biblically centered. 1 Corinthians 4, 1, 2, 1 Corinthians 9, 17, Ephesians 3, 2, 1 Peter 4, 1, and 10, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. If you missed these references, go back and listen to it this week on the website. More and more and more, it calls us over and over again, tenants, servants, children, and ambassadors of God. In other words, the one given the covenant not only to receive the gospel, but to be ambassadors of it, to give it to other people, to tend the garden, to tend the vineyard, and to make it grow in fruit for the glory of God. Are you and I good tenants? Some of us have gone to church our whole lives and we think the gospel or salvation is a noun. It's a thing. I give you the gospel. Thank you. We just hold it. Are you a Christian? Yeah, right here. It's the gospel. Yeah? That's good. The gospel is not a noun, it's a calling. Faith is not a noun, it's a verb. It's to believe and to respond as we are compelled. The tenants, their sin was pointed out to them over and over again, and what they didn't do is repent and confess in humility and believe and be reconciled. What they did is that they ran away from this act of generosity and mercy time and time again. There are two responses we can have to our, faith, our, our sins being shown to us. It's called conviction. When we are convicted of our sins, we have one of two responses. We can run from our sin to the grace of God, or we can run away from God to the destruction of our sin. As tenants, ambassadors, children, are you and I good children of God? Are we running towards the grace of God? And as we run towards the grace of God, are we bringing others with us? Two. Christ alone is the cornerstone and the only thing that we are in need of. Jesus is called the cornerstone over and over and over again. Acts 4, 1 Peter 2, Romans 9, Romans 8. And in the parable, actually, there's no resolution. Did you notice that? Jesus tells what happens, and then he says in verse 9, what am I going to do with these yahoos? And then he talks about something else. He doesn't actually resolve the tension after saying they're going to be destroyed. But he does say in the Old Testament, in the prophecies, it says that the rejected stone, in other words, the son that was rejected and killed, is not going to be a rejected stone, but will become the cornerstone on which everything else will rest upon. He's foreshadowing that in his rejection from the Father, in his death on the cross for you and I, and our sins, it might seem that he has lost to death, but he will actually become the cornerstone as he is resurrected, and he will give us hope, and he will be the only thing that our hope can rest on. So it seems as if all hope is lost. We see that Christ the Son is not rejected, but found. Not only found, but he is the foundation of who we are. And it's interesting because we don't see that. And not only do we not see that, but verse 11, he says this, it is and will be marvelous to the ones who have eyes to see, seek, and surrender to God's plan. You know, Chris, Charlie, whatever they call you, I call him Charlie. I don't know why. Every time we see a soul come to heaven and we come into redemption, do you find it marvelous or are you just kind of like, why is that dude standing up there and why are they throwing water on him? The promise of Christ is that if we have eyes of faith humbled to the gospel, that we will look for God to be moving and the act of God in the gospel will be marvelous. It'll be soul transformative. 
and it'll give us joy to endure in our old stories of brokenness into the new stories of life. Last one, six minutes, don't interrupt me. The last point is this, what is the old story retold? The old story is that in Isaiah 5, you and I were condemned by our sin to death, and we were buried. But the retelling of the story in the gospel of Christ in Mark 12 is that you and I are no longer buried, but we are planted. Because of the hope that we have in Christ, you and I are now planted that if the seed dies, it will grow to bear fruit in the grace of God. Wherever you are in your life right now, wherever you might want to be, no matter how unsatisfied or suffering or insecure, no matter how bad your children are, no matter how annoying your spouse is, no matter how the fact that the person you like will never, ever marry you, whatever might happen or whatever might be, sorry, but in Christ it is inconsequential because Isaiah 5 used to tell us, yeah, we are sinful and dead and buried and hopeless, but Christ says in Mark 12, No, in me, if I am the cornerstone, and if you find it marvelous, and you respond in faithful, joyful obedience, you are no longer buried, but you are planted. And because of me, if you die with me, you will rise with me. Brothers and sisters, that's the story that you and I can celebrate today. That's the old story becoming new. Jesus doesn't say on accident in Revelation, I am making all things new. I don't care if you've been abused. I don't care if you were the abuser. I don't care if you're an alcoholic. I don't care about the circumstances of our lives because, yes, it is sad. Yes, it is broken. Yes, it is varied. But the hope of Christ sustains us, and it is marvelous. You're looking at me like I'm doing math files up here. Yes, three times two is six. But this is how I think. This is why I think that it is not the people outside of the church that are in need of hope, but the people inside of the church. Because we've forgotten that our story is being rewritten even now because of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, you and I are no longer buried. We are planted. And just as surely as Christ rose on the third day, you and I will rise with him again. And we will bear fruit for the glory of God. And we will be found once again to be reconciled tenants to his grace. Months later, tall, white, Dutch roommate three came into the house again, and he looked kind of sad, and I said, I'm not going to the hospital again in my mind, but I said, hey, what's up? What's wrong? He says, no, nothing's wrong, but something weird happened this past week, and I said, what was it? And he said, my friend asked me to go to church. My friend asked to go to church with me, and I was like, that's a good thing, right? He goes, yeah, but I've been telling him about the gospel for years, and he always Never wanted to go, but for some reason he asked. And then they went to church uh, that day, and, and what had happened was, after the pastor had given the sermon, when he smoothly goes down and the praise team comes up, you don't know because you're all closing your eyes, but take a look, open your eyes one, one time. You'll see the transition. Um, while the praise team was going up, his friend just went up to the pastor at the pulpit, and he was like, can I receive Christ as my Savior? And he interrupted the entire service. But the pastor took that as an opportunity, and all 400 people at that church bore witness to a man coming to Christ. This past week, I was preparing for the sermon, and I thought of this story, so I emailed old white Dutch roommate number four, and I said, whatever happened to that guy? Do you still talk to him? He goes, yeah, I still talk to him once in a while. I said, is he okay? Does he beat his kids? Is he still an alcoholic? Is his life condemned to hell? And he said, something that happened after that year was he became a Christian, and he was discipled. 
And something about the gospel where he never drank alcohol again and he never wanted to. And his daughter is a beautiful, beautiful 14-year-old girl. And she's the happiest thing in the world. What God does is marvelous and astounding. And the fact that you and I can hear stories like that and be unmoved speaks more about our heart than the work of God. Brothers and sisters, the work of God is marvelous, and because of his work, you and I are no longer buried, but we are planted to rise with him. And let that encourage and inspire and compel us to live faithfully and obedient and obediently after him today. Let's pray. Father, the work of your hands is marvelous and astounding and a mystery because it does not make sense to what we deserve. and It does not make sense in a world where we have fallen in love with the rules and hierarchies of earthly powers. Father, even as Christians, supposedly with the gospel, we live lives that are filled with quiet desperation, discouragement, hopelessness, Father, we do not find joy, but we find a relegation or a surrender to the weight that we are supposed to carry in this world. Father, we are Isaiah 5. Thank you, Lord, that in the gospel, that in your truth, that in the redemptive work that you are doing, even now within our hearts and lives, that that the story of our brokenness is being rewritten that we are not without hope, that there's nothing that we can do that can outrun the power of your salvation and mercy for us. And Lord, let that be something that convicts, let that be the power that we rest upon, let that be the cornerstone, Lord, that we, we stand upon and shout in the face of a world that condemns us, that we are children and we are no longer buried, but we are planted because of the Spirit's presence. Heavenly Father, won't you us at this time? Won't you convict? Won't you speak? Won't you woo? Won't you, Father, won't you take what we try to cling to as our assurance and identity in this world? You are a good Father. You are a mighty King. 